This is Ron Stockton. Back in 2003, Jane and I were in Berlin visiting our friend Sibylla Larischk. Sibylla was a member of the Bundestag, the German parliament. She was with the Free Democrats, the fourth largest party. None of the German parties ever get a majority, so all governments are coalitions. In earlier times, the Free Democrats had been important members of the governing coalition, but in 2002, they came in just behind the Greens, so Germany was being governed by a coalition of Social Democrats and the Greens. Later, in 2019, I did a series of sit-down interviews with Sibylla. These were quite amazing. I had them printed in book form. They are called, I Was Not Afraid. In those interviews, she discussed how she got involved in politics and what happened during her time in the Bundestag. That project is available on Deep Blue, the University of Michigan Virtual Archive. If you Google her name and the title, it should pop up. I think you might find it interesting. I'm very sad to report that Sibylla died in 2020, much too early. Anyway, the three of us were going to make a trip to the former East Germany, which we did. But first, we had a few days in Berlin. Sibylla arranged for me to meet with some of her party's foreign policy specialists. I decided to write up some thoughts on American foreign policy, but also on American culture and thinking. I called it Understanding the Americans. This was the time when George W. Bush was president. September 11th had happened, and we were in Afghanistan. Then Paul Wolfowitz and Dick Cheney and the neoconservatives had persuaded Bush to take his eye off the ball, as critics said at the time, and shift military forces from Afghanistan to an invasion of Iraq. I was a strong critic of that invasion, which I thought would end in a humanitarian and political and strategic catastrophe, which it did. But I wanted to pull back from my personal positions to discuss American logic and American culture and American politics. The three Bundestag members there, four including Sibylla, were very knowledgeable about the United States, but I thought that perhaps I could add something to their knowledge. And we Americans really are very strange in our politics and our way of thinking. This podcast is what I said to them. In the end, they were pleased with the talk. They banged their knuckles on the table, a way of showing approval. This was a bit new to me, but I realized that it was a variant of clapping, so I took it as they meant it. Jane whispered to me as we were leaving that my presentation was very good. As you listen to it today, it may sound a bit like a period piece. But I think the observations are still very relevant. I hope you like it. I'm pleased to be here and to have the opportunity to exchange some perspectives with you. When my friend Sibylla invited me to speak to this group, I asked if she wanted me to deliver an academic talk or my anti-American harangue, which she has heard. I decided to skip the harangue. I do want you to know that while I am a deeply patriotic person, I am a critic of many of my country's policies. My views should not be seen as typical. Today I want to offer nine observations that I hope will give you some insight into how Americans think and how our political system functions, especially regarding foreign affairs. I want this meeting to be interactive. I want to learn from you at least as much as you learn from me. And if there is something bothering you, please raise it. All questions or comments are in order. Part 1. Geography. I have to start by telling you how interesting it is to me that we can conduct this meeting in English. There is a joke that someone who speaks several languages is called multilingual, someone who speaks two languages is called bilingual, and someone who speaks only one language is called American. 
Unfortunately, there is some truth in this joke, but there's a reason for this, and it brings me to my first point, the reality of geography. You cannot understand my country without understanding that we live on the world's largest island. We have to work hard to engage other cultures. Not only does much of the world speak our language, but we're physically distant from people other than ourselves. For someone like myself growing up in the Midwest, I had to travel nearly a thousand miles to reach a place where the language was anything other than English. That would be Quebec. Our television news is American-centered. If a hole opens up in the ground tonight and swallows Berlin, an American headline tomorrow will say, President reacts to German tragedy. As a people, we are predisposed to be isolated and parochial. We don't understand how the rest of the world operates unless we make the effort to learn. Bill Clinton decided when he was a boy in secondary school that he wanted to enter politics and began a three-decade campaign of self-education. President Bush never made the effort and entered office the most ill-prepared president of modern times. The second aspect of our isolation is that we are protected from invasion by the oceans that surround us. While other countries experience war and destruction, we have not been invaded since 1812. It is inconceivable that foreign armies could reach our shores. We do not fortify our land. Our military forces are designed for mobility, not defense. The continent defends itself. Our song, America the Beautiful, has a line that moved me even before September 11th. Thy alabaster cities gleam undimmed by human tears. We were stunned, more than stunned, by those attacks. It was as if the sun had come up in the west. All of our assumptions about our safety were out the window. I realized that what happened to us was a small fraction of what happened to German cities on a single night during the war, but to us, it was the worst thing any foreign enemy had ever done. Since then, the president has enjoyed exceptional popular support, even as his performance deteriorates. I think we are still in shock, waiting for the next strike, rallying to assemble. Part 3. We're a nation of immigrants. American history has been characterized by a constant influx of people from foreign lands. The discovery of a vast, rich continent with only a few million inhabitants transformed the history of the world. Our task was to populate it without letting it fragment. We began a process called Americanization. We made an unwritten contract with immigrants. We will accept you as one of us, but you have to give up your loyalties and identities and accept our language, our history, and our dreams. Abraham Lincoln once received a letter from a German prince noting that many of his citizens were anxious to immigrate to America, but they wanted to maintain their German culture. He asked if Lincoln would set aside a piece of land where they could settle to be among themselves. Secretary of State Seward, writing for the president, responded that the Germans were welcome, but there would be no land set aside for them, and the language of the public schools was English. By way of personal example, my grandmother was born in France, and I grew up around the French language, but I never learned to speak it. There was an unwritten rule that French would never be used with anyone born in America. There were costs to this, but also benefits. From the very beginning, we've worried that the process might break down and we would be confronted by an alien element within our borders. In each generation, our fears have been unrealized. A colleague told me of a book written a century ago that said Italians 
were unassimilable. That's the word they used. He laughed. They didn't realize that we did not want to preserve Italian culture. We wanted to move to the suburbs and buy a refrigerator. Throughout our history, we have emphasized those symbols and themes that transcend our differences and link us to each other. Ernst Renan once said that to unite your country, it is sometimes necessary to ignore history or even to fabricate it. We have done this quite effectively, turning English Puritans into generic Americans and turning slaveholding Virginia planters into advocates of individual freedom. In school, our children begin the day by facing the flag and reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. Our politicians routinely deliver speeches about American destiny. Such speeches would sound terrifying if delivered by a German leader, but to us, they are uneventful Fourth of July rhetoric. Today, we're facing a new wave of immigrants, the biggest ever. The Mexicans lead the parade, both legally and illegally. Near Tucson, Arizona, where my son lives, the border is porous. Every night, scores of people sneak across. Hundreds die in the desert every year. Perhaps two or three million Mexicans live in this country without legal documentation. Our, borders, our border police seem unable to stop them. Others arrive from Asia and the Middle East. Visitors disappear into the, our vast land. Signs in our post office say aliens must register once a year, but the rules were weakly enforced. Now persons without proper documentation, especially those from the Middle East, will be arrested and probably deported. This is a new age with new fears and new threats to individual rights. As a civil libertarian, I'm very concerned. Part four has to do with the civil religion. Rousseau and de Tocqueville wrote what is commonly called the civil religion. Simply put, there is a unifying religion of the state. The civil religion has everything other religions have, patriarchs, martyrs, rituals, divine holidays, a myth of origin. Americans embrace our civil religion, and our politicians try to pass themselves off as high priests. The words of messianic patriotism that come from our leaders sometimes sound frightening to outsiders, but they're just the way we think. Someone once wrote that if the most religious people in the world are Indians and the least religious people in the world are Swedes, then America is a nation of Hindus governed by Swedes. I would add that we are governed by Swedes pretending to be Hindus. There are several themes in our civil religion. Let me outline them for you, and you can listen to the president's next speech to see how many appear. We are covenant people who prosper only because we bend our knee to God. We are a chosen people, blessed by God in a way that other people can only envy. We are a shining city on the hill, beacon of light unto the pagans. We are a nation drawn from nations for a special purpose. We are a nation protected by God, but only so long as we obey our covenant. Finally, we are a nation that periodically falls into apostasy, is chastened by God, and has to be called back to obedience. Most Americans believe that the, our role in the world is benign. You heard our Secretary of State said that we view our control of Iraqi oil as a trust for the Iraqi people. And you heard our president say that we will stay in Iraq as long as necessary, but not one day longer. Such statements are met beyond our shores with skepticism. But within the country, they resonate as the way Americans should and do behave. We are a naive and innocent people, ill-informed and easily manipulated, at least in the short term. 
We are doubly handicapped by an aggressive and militant electronic media that sensationalizes complex issues and inflames public opinion. Point five has to do with the neoconservatives. I do not have to tell a room full of Germans that the world was transformed a decade ago. All of us were astonished by the fall of the Soviet Union, the reunification of Germany, and the collapse of the communist regimes of Eastern Europe. These events left everyone, from professors to presidents, scrambling to figure out what comes next. We now have what the world resisted for 200 years, a hegemonic power. The U.S. Defense Department reacted to these events with strategic planning documents in 1991 and 2002. These documents embraced American domination. The first dominant The first document spoke of the need to prevent the emergence of any, quote, potential competitors. Germany and Japan were not happy, and the offending phrase was changed to potential adversaries, but the spirit was there. Then came the strategic planning document of 2002 with its doctrines of preemption, unilateralism, and nuclear first strikes. Both of these documents show the hand of Paul Wolfowitz, but also the influence of Dick Cheney. Today, American strategic policy appears to be dominated by an an orientation that we call neoconservative. This is a matter of some controversy in my country, and I would like to offer you some information about this group. These are not conservatives in the Nixon-Kissinger or Bush-Baker sense. Those earlier conservatives were prudent, cautious advocates of American influence in a system of alliances and international law. The neoconservatives are different. Their guru is Richard Pearl, a cold warrior from the right wing of the Democratic Party. Pearl worked for Senator Henry Jackson in the 1970s, but left the Democratic Party because of its opposition to the Vietnam War and its support for detente. He was in the Reagan Defense Department and was labeled the Prince of Darkness because of his strong opposition to arms control. In 1996, Pearl and several of his followers served as advisors to the new Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. They wrote a policy paper for him entitled A Clean Break. It condemned the Oslo Accords, advocated overthrowing Saddam Hussein and replacing him with Prince Hassan of Jordan, suggested destabilizing Syria by using its internal ethnic tensions against it, and urged Israel to give up U.S. foreign aid to increase its autonomy. Through another neoconservative vehicle, the Project for a New American Century, Pearl and his allies wrote an open letter to Bill Clinton, again calling for the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. They advocate similar policies through JINSA, the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs, the Institute for Advanced Strategic and Political Studies based in Jerusalem and Washington, and the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative think tank. You note that they are not elected officials and are not coming out of popular support groups. Pearl was an advisor to candidate Bush in 2000 and headed his Defense Department transition team. A transition team recruits people for key positions in an incoming administration. Several signers of these two documents ended up in the administration. One was Paul Wolfowitz as Deputy Secretary of Defense. 
Others are in the State Department, the National Security Council, and on the Defense Policy Board. There is a strong resistance to the neoconservatives from conventional conservatives, most of whom had doubts about the Iraq War. Many but not all neoconservatives are Jewish and passionately pro-Israeli, i.e. pro-Likud. That has generated some conspiracy theories among extremist elements, but their ethnicity is not sufficient or even defining trait. Many associated with them are not Jewish, including Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld, Vice President Cheney, Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad, former CIA Director James Woolsey, and former Speaker Newt Gingrich. They are often described as intellectuals, but they're really ideologues. What they share is a strategic orientation, an imperial vision. They believe that we are in a unique period of history with the potential to transform the world when the potential to transform the world is waiting for America if it will only seize the opportunity. There are leftover regimes from the communist age that must be pushed aside and religious regimes that must be removed. Among their targets are Iran, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Libya, Sudan, and North Korea. Wow. Afghanistan, Iraq, Serbia, and the Palestinian Authority are now effectively gone, and the others await their fate. These are weak regimes, they say, paper tigers, if you will, that can be easily pushed into the dustbin of history by a quick application of American force or by the instigation of internal uprisings. If we act, we will be renounced and criticized, but we will advance the cause of world civilization. The Arabs in particular, the last region without a pro-democracy movement. History will thank us, so they say. Uh, Kenneth Edelman on the Defense Policy Board was asked what advice he would give President Bush about the Iraq war. I think it's very interesting. Let me read it to you. This is a historic moment. You have a mission. It is almost a divine mission. You have one task in life. That is to wage a global campaign against terrorism and weapons of mass destruction. Unlike any of your predecessors, including Harry Truman at the beginning of the Cold War, you have no public opposition, no congressional opposition, and meaningless foreign opposition. It is a noble, wonderful mission. Our children's lives will be better, better for it. You are given the opportunity by tragedy to solve the large problem. It is virtually impossible to wipe out terrorist groups, but by God, you can wipe out countries that support terrorism. There are two countries that are not easy pickings, but not tough, Afghanistan and Iraq. I have no evidence that Iraq was involved in, nine, in September 11, but I feel it. There is no reason you can't use these ideal conditions to help fulfill your mission. Wow. The neoconservatives mix messianic rhetoric with Cold War realpolitik. One professor said that they combined the idealism of Woodrow Wilson with the tactics of Field Marshal von Moltke. Point six, wars of quick decision. Britain, France, and Russia are familiar with long-term, low-intensity warfare. America is used to wars of quick decision. A few years ago, I had dinner with George McGovern, the Democratic nominee for president in 1972, who had opposed the Vietnam War. He said that Americans are always up for a three-month war, but then they become angry. To tell another anecdote, I once met with the vice president of Syria, 
One of my colleagues asked him <clears throat> if he really believed Syria would get its Golan province back since it had been occupied since 1967. What is 50 years in the history of a country, he responded. Americans don't think this way. As a people, we have no long-term perspective on history. We want solutions, and we want them fast. An American president has until the next election to deal with an issue or face an angry public. The war that began on September 11, 2001, has morphed in from a war against al-Qaeda into a long-term, open-ended war against an undefined enemy identified only as international terrorism, of which Iraq was alleged to be a part. There is no victory in such a war. When we went into Lebanon in 1983, we pulled out in humiliation when we lost 241 soldiers. I opposed the war in Iraq for a variety of reasons, but one was my belief that we will pull out and leave a failed state. I hope our friends can help us make sure that does not happen. The world does not need another Afghanistan. Point seven, weak parties and a strong Congress. In terms of our domestic political structure, our decision process is affected by the fact that we have weak parties and, a strong, and strong congressional committees. The parties are weak because they do not control the two things that every party system should control, their nomination process and their campaign funding. Our candidates are nominated by a primary system that typically has under 40% voter turnout. This means that someone can be nominated by only 20% of the voters in that party. In some states, primary voting is also open, meaning that voters from one party can vote in the other party's primary. With private funding of elections and an extensive network of what are called PACs, i.e. private fundraising organizations linked to special interest groups, a candidate is dependent upon special interests or ideological groups for nomination. Throw in the fact that much campaigning is done via expensive television advertising, and we have a situation in which the party is vulnerable to external groups that can capture its candidates. Let me give you an example. If one of you took $200,000 from a private donor without telling your party, or even against the wishes of your party, you would encounter serious problems. That happens all the time in America. In Washington, there's a second important factor. Congressional committees are very powerful. Those committees, not to mention private members, have their own budgets and their own research staff. A member of Congress is not just an individual, but the leader of a combat team. The committees, through their chairs, control the legislative process, the amendment process, the order in which issues are considered, and even whether or not an issue comes to a vote. They also approve appointments. When a president makes a commitment, it is not clear he can get that commitment approved by Congress without serious concessions, especially if powerful domestic groups resist it. It is not an exaggeration to say that many members and all committee chairs have more independence than most members of the German cabinet. The chairs are chosen through a mix of seniority and election by their party caucus. This means they are good at getting re-elected and at making political deals, but are not necessarily well informed about foreign affairs. Some chairs are superb, but not all. Last year, Dick Armey of Texas, the House Majority Leader, said that the solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was to transport, his word, the Palestinians to another place. After all, he noted, the Jews had been transported, and anyway, there are many Arab states with much land. 
1998, Trent Lott, Republican Majority Leader of the Senate, welcomed Prime Minister Jean Chrétien of Canada to Washington by introducing him as John John uh, Costain. Chrétien kept his smile frozen in place, but it was obvious that he was thinking to himself, if you were in my cabinet, I would kill you right now as an example to the others. When you hear that Congress has passed a resolution declaring Jerusalem to be the united and eternal capital of Israel, a position inconsistent with American foreign policy and certain to destroy any potential settlement, take a deep breath and recognize that this is what we call pandering. When you hear that my local representative in Congress has introduced a bill to grant full U.S. veterans benefits to anyone who served in the Polish army during the Second World War, just remember that Chicago and Detroit are called the second and third largest Polish cities. These are not statements of policy, but efforts to make the voters feel good and to encourage donations in the next election. Point eight, ethnic politics in America. America has 285 million people. Of these, 5.2 million are Jews, 2.5 million are Arabs, and 3 million or more are Muslims. Of the Muslims, perhaps 15 to 20 percent are Arabs. Most are black. And of the Arabs, a majority are Christians. The idea that all Arabs are Muslims is not correct. The Jews are an old population, fully integrated into American society, very prosperous as a rule, and very well organized politically. They were once on the political left, but are now divided among themselves. In 2000, they voted overwhelmingly for Al Gore. The Arabs are a more recent population, some very successful, some not. They are less politically active than the average. Most voted for Bush in 2000. This is not likely to be repeated. Detroit has perhaps 250,000 Arabs, many being <clears throat> Christian, others Shia Muslims, most from Lebanon and Iraq. I've been involved with that community and its problems and would be pleased to discuss it with you if you wish. There are 13 Jewish senators out of 100, and Jews are prominent in American politics. Arabs are less favored. While four Arabs have been elected to the Senate in the past 20 years, all were Christians. Muslims are often attacked when they enter the political realm. Our president and others deserve credit for meeting with Arab and Muslim leaders after September 11th to make sure we did not have a repetition of what happened to Germans in 1917 or to the Japanese in 1942. Political commentators and others have been less kind. At times, it seems there are no restraints in what they will say about Arabs and Muslims, calling for their removal from the political system or even expulsion from the country. The historic parallels are very disturbing. There's an annual poll of Washington lobbyists done by Fortune magazine. The poll asks the lobbyists to rank the most powerful lobbies in the capital. Year after year, two lobbies vie for the top position. One is AARP, the American Association of Retired Persons. I happen to be a member of that group. My sister-in-law signed me up when I turned 50. I was a bit irritated and said, I'm not even close to retiring. Why did you do this? She said, you get discounts on hotels. Then I was pleased. There are reasons why AARP is so powerful. First, it has a large membership. Second, it has its own information network. It can reach its members directly. Third, its members vote. Fourth, it knows what it wants. Its message to elected officials is well known. 
If you touch Social Security, our retirement system, you are dead meat. In other words, we will fight you. This brings up the other powerful lobby, APAC, American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. It is commonly called the Israeli lobby, but its Jewish critics say it is really the Likud lobby. It has a large membership list. Like other groups, they organize annual conferences, typically attended by all presidential candidates, and sponsor a host of summer student interns, political activists in training. Members receive daily emails and frequent alerts about legislative or political leaders who question Israeli policy or the Israeli aid package. Like AARP, the Israeli lobby has a bottom line. If you question Israel, you're dead meat. As one member of Congress said, no one wants to wake up and hear that someone you have never heard of has a half a million dollars and is challenging you in the next primary. Traditionally, APAC functioned to lobby Congress, but in the past few decades, they have developed what we call a grow-at-your-own strategy. They created a spin-off organization known as WINEP, W-I-N-E-P, Washington Institute for Near East Policy. WINEP is a think tank that recruits pro-Israeli scholars and activists and brings them to Washington to write books on U.S. policy in the Middle East. They then promote these persons for positions in the government. Their greatest success was Dennis Ross, Middle East negotiator under President Bush and President Clinton. Other APAC officials in the Clinton administration were U.S. Trade Representative Mickey Cantor and U.S. negotiator Martin Endick. APAC is less prominent in the second Bush administration, having been displaced by neoconservatives. Arabs and Muslims are much less organized. The Clinton campaign of 1996 said that a quarter of its $200 million budget came from Jewish sources. There is nothing comparable for Arab Americans. Their contributions are modest and have been returned or challenged on several occasions. In 2000, Hillary Clinton returned a contribution from one of her Muslim supporters because he was a member of an organization, one of whose board members made an intemperate statement about Israel. Several of my former Arab American students have gone into politics and have been well received, but at the national level, the situation is far less positive. Point nine, the Middle East. This topic is one that I follow closely, but I'm running out of time. Let me just make a few quick comments, for the sake of provocation as much as anything else. First, there is a book by Daniel Jurgen entitled The Control of Oil. Jurgen says that the wars of the 20th century can be understood in terms of efforts by industrial countries to bring oil under their control. While I hate to say, while I hate to do this, I will also quote Saddam Hussein speaking in 1970s when he said that the Americans did not want to own the oil, but to control it. As long as they control it, they can keep Germany and Japan under their security umbrella. A colleague whose insights I respect says this is nonsense. If anyone has a thought on this, I would be glad to hear it. Second, America loves Israel and will always support Israel. That will be true for as long as any of you are in office. At the same time, there have been several occasions when Israel and America have been on a collision course because of fundamental divergence in our security interests. Three American presidents in a row, Carter, Reagan, and Bush, were renounced as anti-Semites. They had tried to represent American interests by, by resisting the settlements. There is an inherent tension in this relationship. 
Finally, when Bill Richardson, a rising star in American politics, was U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations in the 1990s, he said one of his assignments was to prevent any other country or combination of countries from playing a role in resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Keep that in mind. It's our baby.